tribes of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going, Ella? Yeah, very well, thanks, Alice. Yeah, good, good. We're here bright and early. Yeah. Every yeah. Wednesday. Nice to come now. It's a bit lighter in the morning. So That was actually such a treat today. Um, yeah, usually when I wake up, it's still dark. Mm. And today it was just that little bit of that navy kind of bluish sky, but not dark. Yep. Yeah, I think this morning was the first one I've had of not having a minute of defogging my windows. That was nice. Yeah, what a treat. <laughs> you don't have small to things in life. <laughs> it really is. It truly is. And um, yeah, what what do we what what has been happening for the week? The weeking in news and with you. Well, we've had a much discussed earthquake just after we left the studios last week. So oh, it was yeah. pretty wild. Gosh. What was your that earthquake was experience wild. like? I, I know. Like everyone's like, did you feel it? What, what did you, it? yeah, like, what is your earthquake 2021 story? Yeah. Where were you? Where were you it? when that happened? <laughs> yeah, well, we had just done the show. So we were probably about half an hour after we did this show. I got home with my coffee in the kitchen and suddenly, yeah, all the doors and the windows started shaking. And I was with um, in the kitchen with a housemate and I was like, oh, my God, like something's <laughs> happening. Like this is not just not nothing. And he was like, oh, it's just the wind. Don't worry about it. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't believe you. Like that's not true. Um, and then I ran out and then we've, we've got... Um, some tower blocks, not quite tower blocks, but just um, kind of high flats just behind our garden. And they were all out on their balconies, like everything's falling off of the shelves and really bad. Oh, wow. And yeah, the excitement in the in the air was just palpable. <laughs> Everyone was sort of like, oh my God, but yes, something's <laughs> happening. Yeah, well, we you? have a um, we've got a dodgy oven at home. Sometimes it doesn't switch off. So I was like you home in the kitchen making my post 3CR coffee and breakfast um, and it, it felt like it was coming more from the roof than the ground and I had this sudden panic that there was like a gas leak or something. Oh, that's um, kind of scary. But um, yeah, no, it was all good and I'm glad my housemate was home so we could sort of swap stories and be like, did you feel that? Did, are we going crazy? Because it felt kind of strange and spaced out afterwards so it was nice yeah. to have the reassurance. Yeah, it was, it was weird, wasn't it? it was, I, I also thought it was just us in this small area of Melbourne that would have felt it. So I, for a a short amount of time, I was like, oh my God, Clifton Hill is in an earthquake (laughs) and we are the only people in this earthquake. I have to tell everyone, (laughs) tell them what's happened to me. Um, And then obviously, yeah, it wasn't just us. And then I heard everyone else's earthquake story and I was like, oh my God, it's really an experience, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I was almost reassured to hear it was a magnitude of 5.8. It's like, ooh, now that's an earthquake. Yeah, that's what you call an earthquake, everyone. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, that is old news now, but that was our news from 
from Wednesday. We've mm. not been able to talk about it. No, first chance. So, so first <laughs> chance to say anything. So, of course, we have to broadcast it on 3CR. Yes. <laughs> In um, other news, though, hot off the press, we do have some easing restrictions today. Tell me more. Tell, tell me more. Me more. Uh, well, don't get too excited. Oh. <laughs> so I think we can now go 15 kilometres. The radius has extended another five kilometres, wow. uh, which is exciting. And then there's a few more changes to recreation and sports. So I think uh, a lot of sports, as long as there's no contact, you're now allowed to do outside. Um, so wow. I think like personal training, golf, that's one that always seems to get a mention in the restrictions. I always wonder how many golfers oh, we've got out there. But Seriously? <laughs> Who cares? Oh, yeah. I, I hate that. That's just ridiculous. Um, and yeah, just quite telling who these restrictions are being eased for mm. as well. <laughs> You're like, the priorities. Okay, mm. The priorities. All right. The golfers are itching to get back out onto the grass. Yeah. I don't even know grass what you call field. a grass <laughs> golf thing. But yeah, not happy. Um, okay, well, at least that's something. Yeah, baby steps, I think. Baby steps. We can go a little bit further. Yep. That's quite nice. Um, I have been trying to go that bit further. You know, as soon as you're allowed out, you can just kind of do what, what it feels like. You can just do what you want now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, 10K to play with. So I've been going to um, Elwood Beach in the ah. morning sometimes before work, which has been really nice. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. I think the beach might be, yeah, within my radius now. Yeah. So, yeah, jump in. If, you, if, you, if you're driving at home or however you're getting around – um, if the beach is in your radius, I've really enjoyed going there in the mornings before work or, mm. yeah, when whenever I can. And the, I mean, especially before work, so I'm talking about like 7am and oh, the, the the roads aren't actually busy at that, to, to, right now anyway, <laughs> at this moment. So I guess you can try and take what you can from from the less busy traffic on the road. Yeah, I think no traffic is the one perk of lockdown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that it will have something to do with um, the yeah construction industry not being on the road at the moment either. Mm, that's um, true. Yeah, so that's that's made it a, a bit less busy as well. But yeah, okay, well, some easements of restrictions, that's nice. Yeah. And um, what have we got planned for the show today? Well, at the end, uh, well, not really at the end, but around 8.10, I'm going to speak to Azadar Raz Mohammed, who we've had on the show before. Um, she is a lawyer and a PhD student at University of Melbourne, and she's also an Afghani living in Melbourne. Um, and she's going to come on and just talk a bit about updates, really, from Afghanistan, what's what's been happening um, since the Taliban took over. We spoke to her last time only a couple of days after the Taliban um, took Kabul. So bits have happened. And also there has been further developments internationally about how other countries or governments are choosing to either recognise, tolerate, go with caution while talking to the Taliban. So really what's happening on an international level with the Taliban and who is likely to begin to start recognising them, investing, and, yeah, how are the international community going to respond? Excellent. Yeah, it'll be great to have her back. I really enjoyed having her on last time. <coughs> and, um, yeah, for me, first up, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Giancarlo Devera from People with Disability Australia. 
Um, and we're going to be talking about the government's vaccine rollout for people with a disability or kind of lack thereof, because there's still a lot of people with a disability who are not fully vaccinated, uh, despite being in the priority groups 1A and 1B, um, which is, yeah, particularly scary when we're easing restrictions and talking about coming out of lockdown. Um, these are the people who should have been vaccinated first. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, going to be talking about the health risks, but I'm also keen to hear about um, the sort of knock-on effects or secondary effects. Um, so access to care if your carers aren't or your support workers aren't vaccinated um, and just the risk of further isolation for people who are already pretty isolated from society at times. So it'll be good to hear what Giancarlo has to say. Mm. And then a little later on, I'm going to be speaking with Marg Thomas. Uh, so she's chair of the Preserve Our Forest Steering Committee. Um, and they just released a big report yesterday, the conservation values of the Merbu North State Forest Immediate Protection Area. Um, so this report looks at a lot of the campaigns that have gone into preserving the forest in the area, um, all the research and citizen science that they've gathered. Um, and yeah, I think they've looked at not just the role of the forest in the biodiversity of the region, um, but also how it affects the community and the well-being of the people living there. So it'll be good to hear what Marg has to say. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and then we're going to play an interview that I did with Claire from the UK um, from a long COVID support group out that way, Claire Hasty. And I think it's good to just continue to remember and reflect on actually why we why we're all working together in this and why we're all trying to to keep each other as safe as possible and I think this interview really highlights that and in the UK obviously they didn't have um, a plan in the same way that we did and it wasn't led by health and it wasn't advised in the same way and they really lost control quite quickly and Claire Hastie's support group for people with long COVID I think highlights how important it is that we all try and keep each other as safe as possible. So we're going to just play that one again um, because it's always great to hear from Claire. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to play some tunes and then we're going to come back and kick off the show with Claire. So right now we've going to we've got Blue Water Sally Oldfield. Thank you. 
You're listening to 3CR, and we just heard Blue Water from Sally Oldfield. Next up, we're going to be talking about the vaccine rollout for people with a disability. And we're joined this morning by Giancarlo de Vera from People with a Disability Australia. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Giancarlo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, first up, can I get you to give us a rundown of the current situation? Uh, Do we know what proportion of people with a disability are vaccinated? Uh, What proportion of people living in residential care are vaccinated? And how many support workers are vaccinated? Yeah, look, that's that's a hot topic, I've got to say. Um, the, like the, the numbers um, of who is vaccinated is actually quite... It's not very transparent to, to start with. Um, we've, um, the Minister for Health, um, Mr Hunt, released me release. They gave some information, but we actually questioned that information. And then Brendan Murphy, the Chief of Medical Officer, gave some information at the, at the Senate Committee. And according to what they said, the, number, the numbers... Um, are looking better than we actually anticipate. And this is actually a problem. We actually think less um, that the numbers that the government are reporting is actually far less than what we're experiencing actually on the ground. Uh, we've actually been calling for the transparency of the data to be released pretty much from the from the, um, from the beginning. Um, and it's really unfortunate that we have had a, a government that doesn't want to uh, release the data. But according to the, um, the Chief Medical Officer, um, the national population for those on the NDIS, um, apparently the, on the second dose, um, the those who are double vaccinated, just over half, um, while those the first are three quarters. And so, and so, and while those numbers um, are, report, um, are reported, uh, as I said earlier, we're, we're really quite concerned about the fact that those numbers are, quite, um, uh, are not correct and perhaps we refer to the NDIS um, settings for those who are in residential homes instead of the general population. And the other thing to note is that the numbers reported by the government are very much only for those on the NDIS. It doesn't say anything about those who actually aren't on the NDIS, which is about 9 out of 10 people aren't on the NDIS. Wow. Yeah, I was surprised when I was researching for this interview how hard it was to find the statistics. Um, and I'm a support worker myself. And, yeah, certainly in my experience um, working in residential care, there's a huge amount of people who aren't vaccinated um, and, yeah, the process is really unclear even um, for organisations who are, yeah, trained to do this. Absolutely. Um, now, can you run us through where the ga- uh, government's vaccine rollout has gone wrong? Um, so people with a disability were placed in priority groups 1A and 1B, um, but as you said, it, yeah, there's a lot of people unvaccinated. Yeah, look, I think it's, it starts from the beginning, to, um, to be honest with you. Like, we were, the so people with disability were an afterthought from the very beginning. I know when the, um, the pandemic first kicked off, um, we're in our thought we, we had to fight really strongly to, um, to get initial, um, responses to the pandemic to include us. And then, um, the situation changed, um, and we got, we got what we wanted and we got a management operational plan in place, but which hasn't really um, been that effective. And then when the vaccine rollout happened, we were told that we'll prioritize the 1A and 1B. Um, and then unfortunately, um, and, and, I'm, and there's been no transparency around this decision, but the government decided to deprioritize us over aged care, even though they, um, even though they recognized that people in aged care and those disability were definitely the ones most of them that needed to be vaccinated first. And there's no, we have no understanding of why that happened. Um, and that's what the Royal Commission highlighted in their report the other day. Yeah, and I've also heard that there was a bit of a miscalculation in the number of people who fell in Group One A. Is that right? Yeah. So it's, it's, this is a, this is a difficulty as well around the data and how, and how do we how do we get the people 
revaccinated. The concern we've got is that the, the government is not um, is not um, demonstrating the wish need to work with the and territories to get the data they need to ensure the numbers and those who need to be vaccinated are vaccinated. The concern we've got is that we're we're seeing the Southern Territories in the Commonwealth buck, um, passing the buck to each other. You know, Brendan Murph um, said that the, the, the Health Minister for the Commonwealth said yes, um, said yesterday um, that yeah, still, um, he will work with Southern Territories. And we had the Premier from South Wales say the other day that um, it's the Commonwealth responsibility. And so what we really need is just the government, to, um, all governments, to work together. That's the reason why the National Cabinet was created. The National Cabinet was meant to be a coordination of the sake um, of all governments, um, and we need that relationship to happen at that level in order for us, um, in order for the governments to understand um, where it is people have, um, where people really are, so we can get them vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's a, a hot topic at the moment for, but for um, disability advocacy groups, I mean, it's been talked about from the beginning, and certainly, yeah, your organisation has raised red flags a number of times. So it's frustrating. It absolutely is, and I think the concern that we've got is that we're not being listened to. Um, we've raised the alarm months now. Um, we've been raising the alarm since the beginning of the pandemic, and um, and to then have and to then have um, the government come out when things are when things are starting to get really bad, particularly in states with lockdowns. Um, the fact that they have taken action um, in response to um, the situation getting bad is just it's not very comforting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, particularly as restrictions are easing and case numbers are going up at the moment, it's pretty frightening. Um, and there's absolutely. obviously, sorry. <laughs> oh no, I was going to say absolutely. The, yeah. the opening up is a whole separate issue. Yeah, and yeah, I was going to say obviously there's um, the problem of a lot of people with a disability at increased risk of contracting COVID or um, falling ill with COVID. Um, but there's also all these other effects on their life, uh, like access to care or their carers of their choice. Um, and being further isolated from the rest of the community. Um, could you talk a little about that? Yeah, look, being locked in actually is a, is a very significant concern for our community. Um, you know, um, the conversation around opening up, particularly around New South Wales and Victoria, um, is very much unpredicated on modelling that didn't really include the needs of people with disability, nor did it really count, um, account for the Delta variant. And so um, we're really concerned that the modelling that's being used to design for plans for opening up um, is going to cause, impact, um, to cause significant impact and probably our lives um, if things are open up too prematurely. We saw the UK do it too soon, um, and we are concerned that this is going to happen here. And... People will people will choose to not not to, um, not leave their home and self-impose lockdown if they don't feel safe. And what we're concerned there is, I mean, is obviously continuity of supports and how people can keep getting their supports, but also just in general how that's going to be um, impacting their well-being and their um and their daily life. People, some people have been locked up, unlocked, locked in since the beginning, um, and they haven't seen their family and friends. And if, if, if people don't feel safe, they're not going to do so, especially when they don't have the confidence that everyone else around them is vaccinated to a good, to a good degree. Yeah, definitely. And I think while a lot of people are um, understandably really frustrated with the lockdown, most of us can still work or access a lot of the things we normally do at home. Um, whereas, yeah, obviously a lot of people who attend day programs aren't able to do that remotely or unable to learn remotely or all sorts of um, barriers. That's right. There's a lot of things that are being taken for granted. As to what, um, as to how someone with a disability could participate in just everyday things that we can enjoy for those who don't have a disability can enjoy, and it's a it's a shame that while we appreciate the pressures, um, it, 
and I think we need to understand that the cost of opening up will um, will be at the cost of those who aren't protected, um, and that's and that's because of the government not not prioritising us effectively to plan for our vaccinations, um, and and only are only are they now trying to um, to to push things push things to, to move along quicker when um, when the situation may already be irreversibly damaged. Yeah. And um, as you mentioned, a report's been released by the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with a Disability. Um, So this is looking at the experience of of people with a disability in the context of the Australian government's approach to the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Um, Can you tell us a little about some of the key findings or recommendations from the report? What do you want to see happen next? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the key finding that the government under the Royal Royal Commission report um, found was that um, you know the, the word seriously deficient was um, was quoted and um, and the and the primary recommendation was that the, um, was that um, the um, plans open up would should, should hold until um, until um, until people with disability are given the opportunity to be um, to be vaccinated and I think that's the, I think that's a really key recommendation um, that um, that the that the community not just and not just the Australian government should consider as being important the equity of access. Um, of, of, of accessing the vaccine um, remains a concern for everyone, but particularly for people with disability, and especially those from rural and remote communities. We've had we've had uh, people with disability who um, who have only just got the access to vaccine in August in rural and remote communities across Australia, um, and so they're not going to be vaccinated. Um, you know, potentially months later if they, if they take the option to take up the Asian vaccine, and so that means that that's pushing up that's pushing people to at least. November, um, and when you've got states and territories wanting to open up um, as early as next month, then that doesn't bode too well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this morning, but thanks so much for joining us, Giancarlo. It's been really good. Thank you very much for having me. Good one. And that was Giancarlo Devera, a Senior pa- Manager of Policy with People with a Disability Australia. And now we're going to take a listen to Jive Baby on a Saturday night, The Jellies.
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. 
weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And next up, we're going to be speaking with Marg Thomas from Preserve Our Forests, Merbu North. Um, who released a report yesterday, the conservation values of Merbu North State Forest Immediate Protection Area. Good morning and welcome to 3CR, Mark. Good morning, Ella. Thanks for joining us bright and early. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we get into this report, can I get you to first up tell us a little about the Strzelecki Ranges bioregion, which the Merbu Forest is in? Okay, so the Strzelecki Ranges bioregion, um, which is a, a range of mountains or hills or um, that goes from near the east coast to um, along the back of Merbu North. Now, in um, historic times, it suffered massive clearing of native forests that was for agriculture and also extensive clearing to convert to uh, the monoculture of plantations. And that was because of the close proximity to the um, paper mill in Maryvale. So less than 2% of the Streslake bioregion is currently conserved. So uh, it, it makes it the most depleted bioregion in the, in the state. Wow, it's alarming. <laughs> and um, it's a pretty important area in terms of biodiversity to the region. Um, I understand there's a lot of different native plants and animals, including some threatened species found in the forest. Yes, that's right. Well, our um, our actual work was uh, contained within the Merbu North section of the bioregion. We didn't work on the the wider region, but um, some of the iconic species that we uh, found were the greater glider, the powerful owl, burrowing crayfish species, the lace monitor, and of course the platypus. We've also got um, iconic regionally significant species. Uh, we've got the Streslecki koala or South Gippsland koala, which um, has a unique 
genetic diversity uh, that would um, possibly help to stop the extinction of other Victorian koalas, which, as you know, suffer from interbreeding. We've also got the superb lion bird in our area, and um, this has got a strong connection to our community, or should I say our community has a strong connection to the lion bird because we have a very iconic nature walk called Liebird Walk and there was also a book written in t- titled The Land of the Liebird and that was the story of settlement in uh, the great forest of South Gippsland. So the, um, the small area of forest that we have here, if you can imagine, it's surrounded by farmland and plantations. So we have this tiny, tiny region of forest in which we have all these species. So it's really important. It's, re- it's a really important um, asset to not only habitat and biodiversity, but also to the community as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And um, can you tell us a little about the process of compiling this report that was released yesterday and some of the key findings? Because um, I understand it was the culmination of four years' work. Yes, that's right. We um, undertook field surveys. Uh, that was um, biodiversity field surveys. We also undertook economic, socio-economic surveys. Um, we also had uh, uh, a campaign involving, I should say, in tandem with the field surveys, we had um, we involved the community. Uh, to a large extent with our work. And of course, we always uh, consulted the community in our work. Uh, The community actually mandated that we go out and we do this work. um, It's fully backed by our community, the majority of our community. So uh, once we'd finished these surveys, we thought, well, because nothing, no significant studies had taken place in this particular part of the forest, uh, we thought, well, we need to get this down properly in a, in a concise manner, in a, in a composite report. So this is how we undertook the report. And um, we think it's going to be very valuable as a resource, as a reference resource for the future. So it took a long time because we we needed to really refine the work that we did. And, um, yeah, and we had a lot of contributors, uh, all of the uh, steering committee of our group of Preserve Our Forest, they all contributed in some way to the report by either writing sections of it in their particular areas of expertise or supporting it in other ways so it was a it was a real um uh you know team effort yeah absolutely and it sounds like you've got a very involved community there who really values this forest yes yes that's right well i think um the value of our forest has really um been highlighted because if you remember back or quite some years ago when the Uh, SEC, the State Electricity Commission, as it was called at the time, was privatised. So a lot of our people here work 
there. And of course, all that was gone. And so our community needed to reinvent itself, so to speak. And we, um, you know, became a tourist attraction. And of course, these forests are highly valued in that sense, um, both for tourism and of course for the well-being and recreation of the community. Absolutely. And um, is there logging currently planned for the area? No. Since the Minister declared an immediate protection area for this forest in 2009, um, no logging is allowed. But our work at the moment is to secure protection for the IPA. So there is a, a next... The IPA, of course, was the first step. And the next step will be to uh, secure the, this IPA into, uh, we hope, Nature Conservation Reserve. Excellent. And, yeah, I understand this report is um, going to be given to the IPA process um, committee going forward and they're going to be taking into account some of the research you've done? Uh, yes, well, we hope they will. They should. <laughs> uh, we've got VIAC, which is the Victorian Environmental Assessment Council. They'll be doing some uh, studies here. Uh, so, you know, we've done a lot of work and it's it's verified by being onto the uh, Victorian Biodiversity Atlas. Um, so, yeah, so it should be a good reference source for them we'll see yes here's hoping they have a good read <laughs> mm. um and yeah just lastly before i let you go mark uh you spoke about yeah hoping um that the next step is getting a reserve put in the area um do you have any other hopes for um what will come of this report well i think apart from you know being instrumental in creating a, a reserve Nature Conservation Reserve. I think, as I said earlier, I think it's it's going to prove to be an excellent reference document for future generations. Um, you know, for instance, all of us in the committee one day will move on, and and we we hope that others will take up the um, <clears throat> take up the roles that we've had in the community. And I think this this will give them a good head start to the further work that needs to be done. Uh, yes, there's, uh, you know, more surveying, by biodiversity surveying can be done. And, um, yeah, so we're hoping that that will inspire others. Definitely. All right, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Marg, and, yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Ella. That was Marg Thomas from Preserve Our Forests, Merbu North. And here's World Turning by Yuthu Yindi.
And that was World Turning Yuthu Yindi. We were having such a little dance and a little jive into ourselves in the studio with that song. It's so such a good song to just boogie to. Um, so yeah, thank you, Ella, for introducing us to that one. And now we're going to listen to an interview that I did um, with somebody called Claire Hasty from the UK. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, I think it's a good time to remember why we are restricting ourselves, why we are kind of all in this together still. Um, the UK haven't or hasn't had a plan in the same way that Victoria has um, or... Yeah, I'll say just Victoria, um, and so and you can and you can see that definitely on these long COVID support groups, um, and how much it is affecting people. And I think it's a yeah a good time to remember and reflect on how we all we all can do this together still, and we all can look out for each other in in how we're how we're going about our day to day under these restrictions. And so here's Claire Hasty from. Um, the UK from the support group Long Covid Support Group, which is a Facebook group that anyone can go and join. And I started by asking Claire what Long Covid looks like in the UK, but most importantly on a global scale. The actual symptoms and the impact, doesn't matter where you're from, um, they can be enormously debilitating. Um, a study was published today in the UK, but from an international group of um, researchers who are actually people living with long COVID. Actually, most of them are based in the US. And that shows that over 200 symptoms um, have been experienced by patients. Um, and at the time of doing the survey, there were seven people who had been ill seven months and um, almost 70% of them were unable to work either at all or to their previous capacity. So it's changing people's lives. And um, in the UK, the government is starting to put in place help. So over the last few months, we've had clinics in England only. So if you're in Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland, you don't have access. But actually, we need research to catch up. So those clinics don't actually really know how to help patients. So we're largely abandoned, frankly. Um, and in a, people are in a lot of pain. Um, as I mentioned, they're losing their livelihoods, relationships are breaking down. So it really is life changing and it can affect people of all ages, including children. And we have um, we have a Facebook group with 42,000 members in 100 countries, including several hundred Australians. Um, and we have a sister group, Long COVID Kids. So no matter what age or how healthy and fit and active you, you, you are and how good your diet is, that's no protection. In our group, we have a Commonwealth Games athlete, we have several marathon runners, and people who are really highly active. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how tough and determined and fit you are, it can still floor you. And what are the type of symptoms that we're seeing with long COVID? So, um, as I mentioned, there have been over 200 that have been documented in a research paper that was published today, um, and that can affect anywhere in your body. So um, from hair loss to COVID toes and anywhere in between. But people tend to talk a lot about breathlessness and fatigue, which, which are common symptoms. But actually, people don't talk as much um, as uh, about the cognitive effect. And that's actually, for lots of people, a reason that they can't work. I was unable to work for more than a year 
And even though I had debilitating physical symptoms, I'm lucky to have a job that I can do from home and desk-based. So it wasn't the physical symptoms as much as the cognitive ones that have been the barrier. I was, um, well, I remain unable to concentrate, um, to absorb and retain information. And some people struggle to find words. Um, so, yeah, it really can affect anywhere. I mean, researchers are hopefully working very hard on this. Um, we know that the NIH in the US has put 1.15 billion US dollars for researching long COVID. Um, and the UK government has put 50 million pounds to that. Uh, and I'm, hope, I'm sure people in other countries also are researching it. But as you say, it's such a widespread thing that the main thing that I believe we need to get to is to understand the mechanism. What is causing this? So there are various hypotheses, all of which might well be correct. So I think people are saying you may have one or all of some kind of autoimmune system um, that's been triggered. It may be that there's persistent virus sort of hidden away in your body in a kind of reservoir in people's gut and that kind of thing, because we know that some studies have found it even several months after infection. Um, and also there's, um, we know that there's organ damage, that the inflammation, the cytokine storm or, or, or other effects have caused. So there's another study called the cover scan study in the UK. They have a special type of MRI scan, which has picked Picked up that 770% of people, mostly who had been who had not been hospitalised, had detectable damage to one or more of their organs. Um, we don't know whether that will persist or whether it will resolve over time. And I think that's one of the most difficult things with this, with long COVID, is that we don't know we don't know when we'll recover, whether we'll recover, and how fully we'll recover. Wow. And you mentioned before that. It affects people socially as well and the relationships they have. And I'm sure as for family dynamics, it must be really hard as well. I think it's a huge strain on relationships um, because you know, your partner, and in my case, my children, become your carer so my my children actually have long covid also um so when i when we fell ill um my eldest son was 15 and my twin sons were 11 um, and they all also had long covid uh, and in fact my now 12 year old twins still do have long covid they've been off school several days this week with their relapsing symptoms but thankfully my my now 17 year old he even though he had he had what you call COVID toes, where you're, it's something to do with your circulation and your blood vessels, they think, but your his toes went an alarming shade of dark purple, almost blackening um, for several months and blistered and peeled. Um, but he felt fine in himself, which is just as well, because I'm a single parent, so he had to learn to cook pretty sharpish. He was a classic teenage lad that I'd been trying to persuade to help me do around the house for years, but to no avail. But he had to step up because I was bedridden for almost three months. And even when I stopped being bedridden, I was largely bedridden and I would be able to pot around the house and that was about it. So he had to learn to cook, he had to cut the grass, he had to do all the laundry. My, we had friends and family um, shopping because I didn't even have the strength to even find my laptop, never mind switch it on and set up online deliveries at the time. Um, so, yeah, my kids had to grow up pretty quickly. And, and at that time, were you supported by the government in any way? Were you able to get some financial support and any kind of social support as well? 
in the UK, you don't get any extra financial help through long COVID. You get the usual social security type safety net that, that other people might get. So there are you know, disability benefits, but I think and for a lot of those, I think you have to probably be ill for 12 months or more. I mean, certainly that was the case, whether they are changing things now and whether people who've been ill. I know when people were applying, when they'd only, in inverted commas, been ill six months last summer, they were being turned down for those. But now that long COVID is more recognised in the UK, I don't, I don't know whether people are seeing more success or whether they still have to wait till they've been ill for 12 months or more. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly, I mean, people, as I say, they're, they're, they're losing their livelihoods, they're having to sell their homes and their assets and, and rely on families to, to borrow money. Um, it's, it's incredibly stressful. Yeah. And do you know if the symptoms are very different in children to adults? You mentioned that there's a different, you've got some different Facebook groups for support. Are the symptoms very different as well? So some of the symptoms overlap between adults and children, but they do, you know, there has tended to be a different presentation. And of course, with the, some of the new variants coming out, the symptoms in adults are presenting differently than what they have done in, in adults previously as well. So it's a bit of a moving feast. But um, my children are, 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 I think, more typical of some, not well, there's nothing typical about long COVID. I'm going to correct what I just said. <laughs> but, but children tend to get a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, so sickness, diarrhea, really painful cramps, bloating. Um, and they tend to also get a lot of, of rashes, which again, you know, adults get all of those things also. Um, but so there is this kind of slightly different presentation with the Delta variant. Um, that's predominant now in the UK. Um, I don't know what the difference is between adults and children so much, but its symptoms tend to be like a summer cold or a um, or hay fever. So a lot of, you know, in the UK, the government has not done a great job at communicating what the symptoms are. So I think a huge number of people um, are unwittingly spreading the virus, thinking, oh, I've just got a sniffle. It's just a bit of hay fever. I'm just going to go into work. I'm just going to send my kids into school. Um, and, and cases are, are rising rapidly. Wow. And I don't want to speculate or um, mislead anybody either, but do you know if um, the vaccines can, are they preventing long COVID? Um, it's a little bit early to say with the vaccines, but we know that people who are double vaccinated are catching COVID, um, the Delta variant, um, really quite you know, in great numbers in the UK. So I think it reduces the, the the chances of you getting it. And I think it reduces the chances of you transmitting it, but it doesn't eliminate those. So lots of people um, who were in hospital have been double vaccinated. Um, and and we, again, it's it's a little bit early days, but we there are, there is evidence that people who've been double vaccinated and caught COVID are developing long COVID. So you shouldn't get any false sense of, of security or complacency just because you've been vaccinated because the, the variants are breaking through. Um, and obviously, while any population is partially vaccinated, that apparently, you know, that causes, that gives great conditions for more variants likely to emerge as well. Mm. And if you have long COVID, are you able to get the vaccine? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I... I 
got mine as soon as I possibly could. And in the UK, unlike some countries, um, children are not being vaccinated at the moment. We know that in places like US, Canada, in the various EU countries and Israel, children over the age of 12 uh, are being vaccinated, but not as yet in the UK. Um, but at my because my son, who was then 16, he's been my carer, so I was able to, um, to get him vaccinated because of that. You're listening to 3CR. This is Alice. I'm talking to Claire from the Long Covid Support Group. And this group is a global support network on Facebook and online for people suffering with long COVID. And that's at longcovid.org. My final question to Claire was, how do we support the Long COVID support group and its global members, including its hundreds of Australian members right here? I guess it's, that's really kind of you to offer. It's not really about supporting us so much as supporting people out there who may have long COVID. I think there's a huge amount of people who won't know that they have this. So, for example, I have a good friend who mentioned to me at various points over the weeks. At one point, she mentioned that she'd been checked out for arthritic hands, which she developed. She's in her early 40s. Um, and then in a separate conversation, she went, mm, you know, I always had a stomach of iron, but actually I've had diarrhea um, every single day for um, almost a year now um, at the time of her telling me this, you know, ever since I had a nasty cough in March 2020, which was a real, the first wave in the UK. Mm. So and she had to join the dots and, and realise actually diarrhea, arthritic hands, nasty cough, and she's and she knows now that she actually has long COVID. So I think there's huge numbers of people that just don't realise what's going on. Arthritic pain is, is a case in point. I know several people who kind of go, "Oh, I'm really stiff these days. I can hardly move," and and they don't connect that that could have anything to do with, with their illness. And in fact. Even if you're asymptomatic at the acute phase, you can develop long COVID. So there are people developing symptoms with never knowingly having been ill in the in the first instance. So it's an incredibly difficult thing to pin down. Wow. But yeah, anyone out there who is thinks they may have long COVID, we have a website, longcovid.org, where we have resources on there and there are links to our Facebook group, which is a global group. Um, anyone is welcome to join. It's a very warm community. We offer activities in there such as chair yoga and opera breathing and we have a choir and we, we have social Zooms and all that kind of thing. So, you know, please, if anyone is, is out there and needing some help, then, then we're here. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and that was Claire Hasty from the Long Covid Support Group. Um, as you'll have gathered through that interview, it is run out of the UK, but the Facebook group is global. So for anyone experiencing Long Covid or if you know anybody, you can send them this information or you can head to their website, longcovid.org, and you'll find all the links to their Facebook groups. And now we're going to play a song from one of the Beyond the Bar sessions in 2015, um, just really to highlight that 3CR, the team here, have put a fantastic podcast together called 20 Years on the Inside, which has looked um, at 20 years worth of Beyond the Bars. So NADOC week every year, 3CR go and set up in prisons across uh, across Victoria and speak to the Indigenous and First Nations 
people in those prisons and about their experiences. They reflect and in this podcast, they reflect on what's happened in 20 years, what hasn't happened, what needs to happen. Um, and Vicky Roach and Archie, oh, Vicky Roach, uh, yeah, and Kutcher Edwards are the hosts. And so this is You Only Live Once by James. That's right. Recorded at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in 2015. Never felt frustrated by life Feel like you messed up in your first And been left condemned to strife Like you're living it twice Being punished with double jeopardy Not understanding that people can go through this And they'll let it be better We gotta try and break the cycle of pain Know it's tough but inside We got the power to change Avoid the showers of rain Dodge the storms you can make Your attitude to carry and pessimistic Better to be belated, ecstatic and happy Have we dealt with bad things in our mind? Answers yes, positives outweigh The perils of crime Let me define what I'm feeling With these uplifting words Empower no down and out, what a motivational verse Could it get worse? Of course it could become Nothing but stress, when I'm depressed Employ rhyme and get the steam off my chest In fact I've been blessed, with the talent And I'll use it, one thing I value most In this world is my music, so if you're Feeling down and you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I can give you Is get up, you only live once So make the most of what you have and just Remember that what isn't good ain't always Bad, yeah, if you're feeling down You're lying in bed stuck, the only Advice that I can give you is get up you only live once, so make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad, yo I believe in a world full of happiness I'd like to live in a place without having a stress So if you've been dealt some bad cards in life Is it suggesting best you grab your pen and pad to write Whatever you're feeling with uplifting words And this could go two ways, either better or worse And maybe I've been cursed by a spell to speak my mind Instead of being violent I unleash my fury on a rhyme And over periods of time my outlook changes Makes me able to identify the maximal dangers I'll stay away from strangers, hurry situations Surround myself with good people, those that I've known for ages Don't self-mutilate with races I medicate with music before my temperament escalates Work averse to diffuse it Whenever I'm about to lose it I'm away of my options and make the right decisions I don't need bad choices on my conscience If you're feeling down, you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I could give you is get up You only live once, so make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad, yo So if you're feeling down, you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I could give you was get up You only live once So make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good Ain't always bad, yo The inspiration from greats like Muhammad Ali He too went to prison, was eventually free I employ different thinking, a news a new scheme A firm believer in reality, it's good to be a dreamer Yeah, goals can be accomplished if we want it to happen So I don't just think it, I live it, I regularly imagine My actions speaking sadder and out loud And the wisdoms of that negative behaviour That won't help me go to distance in the long run Better to defuse situations Instead of volatility, use communication and patience Yeah, it's harder to start, but the end 
results are worth You gotta start somewhere and it helps know when nobody's perfect If I stay on the right track, I know I'll persevere And react in the right way instead of wrongly to fear Cause these days for me, violence be the last resort Any man can throw a punch, it takes a real man to talk But if you're feeling bound and you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I could give you is get up You only live once, so make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad, yo So if you're feeling down, you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I can give you is get up You only live once, so make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad, yo That was You Only Live Once from James, and it was recorded as part of the Beyond the Bars program at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in 2015. And just a reminder to listeners that the Beyond the Bars CD, 20 Years on the Inside, is out now. And you can listen to that podcast also um, on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you find your podcasts. So do take a listen. It's fantastic. Now, last time we spoke to Azadar Raz Mohammed, um, it was a couple of days after the Taliban took over Kabul. Um, Azadar is a lawyer, PhD student at the University of Melbourne. And today we're going to just talk about what's happened since we last spoke, just days after um, the Taliban took Kabul, as I just said. Now, Azadar, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. And last time, I think there was such an urgency that we wanted to speak to you and, and understand what was happening from your perspective that we didn't really spend much time talking um, about you and not that you need to talk about yourself. But I just hoped maybe you could give our listeners a little glimpse of your own experience um, leaving Afghanistan or coming to Australia and that kind of relationship. Yeah, right. Um, so my family left Afghanistan in 1998 and I belong to a minority group of Hazaras. Um, we live in uh, southern Afghanistan, close to Central Highland, where is um, stronghold of Hazaras um, in Afghanistan. We left the country because um, Taliban had seized my um, uh, my province uh, for two years prior to that, and there was a human um, humanitarian catastrophe was unfolding. People were dying of hunger. There were shortage of medicine, and then um, uh, Taliban uh, was actually imposing um, a lot of restrictions on and, and freedom of movement and any kind of uh, foreign aid uh, or humanitarian aid to enter our province. Um, I was a little child, and together with uh, my family, we decided to leave. A lot of family left the area on on those years, and we were among them, so we had to um, uh, basically um, uh, leave um, our hometown in the middle of the night and enter Pakistan without any documentation. And uh, and lucky for us and for my family is that my, my father was already doing a small business in one of these Central Asian countries. And so we had no documentation, no passport. And after um, some time uh, in Pakistan, we managed to get a, a passport a passport and documentation from the embassy then. I think it was Taliban's embassy and the Emirat, the, the Emiratic um, Islamic of Taliban's um, Afghanistan's embassy. So we got our documentation and traveled to join my father in Uzbekistan. My story is one of the luckiest Afghans ever that I, I, I speak. Uh, because um, uh, we didn't experience uh, all those harsh treatment as a refugee, and then I didn't experience war, but 
um, all those two years that I, I had to develop my cognitive behavior and cognitive uh, um, understanding of the issue in Afghanistan was uh, the war on trauma, for example. And for the first time, I knew I was a Hazara was from radio. We would always listen to BBC Persian, like religiously, like a lot of families in that area to know what's happening across the country because then we didn't have internet or like a connection to the telephone. So it was just the radio that we would um, always um, listen to. And um, I hear that from radio that a bunch of, um, a group of Hazaras were being executed in Mazar Sharif. Um, and that's a kind of a genocidal um, character. It has a genocidal characteristics. I asked my older brother, who usually used to um, uh, tune into radio for us, and I asked him that, uh, who are Hazaras and why are they being killed? And my brother told me that um, uh, we are Hazaras and uh, we are being targeted by Taliban. Being so naive and so young, I was just probably eight or nine, I asked my brother, um, uh, can we not be Hazaras so we will survive? And that's the memory that I always remember. And another memory that's haunting me from my childhood living at the fair of the Taliban is um, my everyone's first grade teacher is so special to them. And um, I had a very, um, like any other child, I think, and all over the world, I had a very... Um, a special bond with my first grade teacher, uh, his name was Bayani, and um, him together with two other teachers uh, coming from Kandahar, one of the strongholds of Taliban cities to our province, uh, was actually abducted on, the, on their way to our province of Ghazni, and they were uh, shot and killed. So not having them, like his absence and not having him and the rumors that he was actually killed by Taliban and, and all these scary scenarios of how he was killed, execution uh, uh, scenario, is something that uh, I never probably recovered from, and uh, I always remember him. And I always, for example, I have a deep respect from all teachers now that I'm doing a PhD in this level. But his memories, his uh, teaching is still stay, stayed with me, and uh, very, very foggy memory, of course, but it still stayed with me. So these are my uh, my um, story of uh, uh, of childhood in Afghanistan, and then I saw Kabul for the first time in 2005. Um, my family used to uh, originally live in Kabul, uh, my parents, and uh, they left the Kabul during the civil war, and then we were all born in our uh, in our thing, in our um, hometown of Jogori. Um My father didn't take us to a family house because that whole side of Kabul was completely destroyed, and the houses and everything was. Um, it was not something that he wanted us to see and remember of Afghanistan. And no matter how much my parents tried to protect us, not to um, be too much exposed to these um, uh, these traumas, these harsh realities of the conflict and war and Taliban in the ground, but um, we were somehow exposed like so many children. So I consider always myself very lucky that um, uh, my father was already out of the country and we left. And uh, um, I, but I always fought with the identity crisis. I, I never um, knew what kind of. Um, um, you know, I, I always hold so much uh, pride in being an Afghan, like any other like any other person who would love their country. But having Taliban representing, I always had a conflict there. So um, and then I left for uh, for the UK to study, and then I returned to Afghanistan in 2013. I worked there uh, in a, with a foreign um, a mission and uh, on human rights and humanitarian issues. And every day we um, we had a horror story of suicide attacks of uh, complex attacks on on, uh, on issues 
And I just wanted to end this. Uh, your, your, I, it was a really long answer, but I wanted to end this um, answer that um, when we had last week an earthquake in Melbourne, um, I was in my apartment in South Bank, um, and I was holding my um, uh, one-month-old, two-month-old baby, and my husband was asking me something. And then I, when I felt the initial shock, it's just the trauma and all those memories of Kabul's suicide attack by Taliban came back to me. And I, I just don't remember how I did that, but I just remember that I grabbed my baby, a blanket around her, and I just ran to emergency. And I don't know how I ran down those seven floors, because in my mind, I was in Kabul. In my mind, I was running from the Taliban suicide attacks. Because um, when I started working in 2018, up until 2018, that I came to Australia, the daily or weekly suicide attack was something that we, we had to accustom to that and we had to be resilient to that and we had to make take measures in order to save ourselves. So those instincts that um, this is a suicide attack, this is something that's happening in Australia to me, and coming down those stairs running from the emergency and my husband from running behind me to make sure that I'm safe with the baby in my arm. I had all those traumas back to me, and I couldn't recover for another two days from from that. So um, you can imagine all of those people are going through right now and uh, been going through all these years from the Taliban terrorization and intimidation. Wow, Azadar, thank you so much for for sharing that with us. That's your your story and also your trauma that you just mentioned. Um, and that earthquake, it must have been terrifying for you. Yes, exactly. Because um, the the um, thing is that when I got uh, like a run down to the stairs, uh, we had uh, actually was we were moving houses, so there was a bunch of uh, removalists at home, and they didn't even realize what's happening because um, I think my instinct or those survival uh, tactics that I had uh, with me from Kabul that we were trained actually sometimes, unfortunately, starting a job part of a contract working with a foreign mission or with any uh, organization would be to train you on where the safe houses are, where how do you get out. There's two types of alarms. One of them is to lock down because Taliban is in the area like they're attacking. Mm-hmm. One of them is to leave the building because they're attacking actually the building. So you have to rem- remember which one is that alarm from. So and um, having um, my office used to be in a couple of diplomatic areas. So um, these attacks was really, really frequent. Uh, I remember that the first week that I started my uh, job, uh, we had five attacks in one day, like extremely powerful, um, complex attacks of suicide attacks, killing a lot of civilians, most of them aid workers, foreign aid workers, of course, Afghan civilians, bystanders, shopkeepers. Anyone who was unlucky enough to be on that uh, on that side would be killed indiscriminately, and Taliban would take bluntly responsibility for that. And I think you and the world has seen, and you have might might have seen the Taliban spokespersons, Abdullah Mujahid, who uh, like appeared last month in Kabul for the first time, showing his face of who he is. Um, his voice is so much familiar to a lot of us because he took responsibility for those attacks, saying that yes, we were behind of those attacks, we were attacking this person, there was collateral damage, and it's all right. So it's very traumatizing and it's very sad and extremely disappointing. And I can't even explain how we feel to see him there right now representing and speaking from, uh, um, like somehow speaking to the world from Afghanistan's address now, mm. who took responsibility for all those traumas that we're going through. Like even going to the office, like we had to change every day uh, from which road I'm taking. And one day I leave at 7 a.m., at 6 a.m., or at 9, at 10. So I avoid these attacks and I avoid these tactics. And if I'm um, 
personally actually being targeted, I have to avoid that because you, uh, as working as a human rights lawyer or a humanitarian lawyer in Afghanistan, you have to speak up against a lot of people and there's um, um, a lo- always a threat and a target on you and uh, um, you receive a lot of uh, uh, intimidation, warnings, phone calls. So you have to um, be very vigilant. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, traumatizing and it's very upsetting to see these people now in power again. And the one thing that I think is is interesting that you have actually written about um, in an article for the Sydney Morning Herald is is what of what countries when when the Taliban are now looking to develop their communications to the to the global leaders of the world and they they're to try to maintain their control. Mm-hmm. How how dangerous is that what what are we seeing what countries around the world might be starting to acknowledge the taliban and potentially look to invest in a taliban afghanistan yes that's uh, that's very concerning actually um and so pakistan in the in the late 90s when taliban came uh, into power um of course illegitimately again um, they, uh, Pakistan, which is a long-term supporter of the group, um, um, recognized the, the, them as the legitimate government of the country. So I think it was uh, UAE, um, uh, United Arab Emirates, recognized them, and I, I believe it was Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm having such a foggy uh, brain today. <laughs> so they, these three countries um, recognized Taliban as a legitimate government or, uh, of Afghanistan, and of course the world always contested their, their um, yeah, legitimacy uh, as a government. But they didn't do anything. They were like just right, like right now, they were bystanders until the um, 9/11 happened. And just before the 9/11 happened, um, uh, the years leading to that, like the four years leading to that, we were always warning. Um, there was a um, Northern Alliance who were fighting resisting the Taliban. They always uh, um, warned the world that you know we have the international terrorist uh, terrorism there. Um, and this is a concerning not only for Afghanistan or for the region, but for the world. But nobody actually listened to us. Just I think um, just a month or two before this uh, tragic event of 9/11, um, the head of uh, uh, Northern Alliance Resistance Group, Ahmed Shamasud, he spoke at the European Parliament saying that um, this is very concerning and warned the world that you know what's happening in the country. Please do something. And it was actually uh, ignored right now. Um, so it's very um, right now uh, that the Taliban actually introduced a few weeks ago an interim government saying that this is just an interim government and a caretaker government. We are working on a more inclusive government, but I don't. Uh, we don't really believe that Taliban will honor any of this commitment that they are giving. They just are looking for recognition and acceptance by the international community. So countries that have actually indicated that they are um, willing to work with the Taliban, especially on um, uh, on uh, a lot of commercial uh, routes, a lot of commercial investment, are um, Pakistan, of course, again. Uh, Pakistan is now advocating for the Taliban to be accepted uh, um, um, by the UN and by the international community. It's China and uh, it's uh, some of the countries in Central Asia, including Uzbekistan, that they um, uh, indicated that not um, directly, but just indicated that they actually want to introduce, uh, accept Taliban as the legitimate government of the country. And is it is it just on a whim that a government can say, yeah, sure, we accept the Taliban or we're going to accept this ruling group or are there standards? Do Do the Taliban actually need to meet standards in order to gain international recognition? Um, there, according to uh, law, um, there are a few standards to recognize a country, and that there is a difference to recognize the government according to international law. 
But um, countries are uh, mostly uh, very independent on what they want to do. Um, But um, the international community has uh, not directly in terms of written form, but verbally and uh, through communication, speeches has put three conditions for Taliban to be um, to follow, actually. One of them is having more inclusive government. What inclusive government means is that Afghanistan is a country of ethnic diversity. And there are no... um, Although they, there is a claim that a certain ethnicity probably is uh, more uh, on the majority, but there has been no um, survey, so we don't know who's the majority and who's not. So they believe that there should be an inclusive government of all these ethnicities. The international community is imposing that. And the, first, the other one, that Taliban should take more measures um, not to uh, make Afghanistan a harboring um, country for terrorism again. And the other one is to respect for women's rights. But uh, so far, none of them has been happening. And I'm not sure why the international community is putting so much leniency towards Taliban, because as you might have seen that um, Taliban has banned secondary and high school Mm -hmm. students to go back to school. And then Taliban has eliminated Ministry of Women's Affairs, making it a propaganda ministry for um, virtue and uh, prevention offense, which is uh, religious policing and has uh, asked men not to um, uh, not to shave their beard or, uh, or or women to leave the house and then a lot of my former colleagues who used to work in the government they're not allowed to go back to their offices and there, um, there, there was a lot of protests of women protesting these brave brave women protesting Taliban and you have seen the images that they are protesting at the bullet points Taliban are literally pointing them mm-hmm. uh, with the gun but they are still screaming and saying that you are not if you are not, you do not represent us, and we want equal rights. Uh, with all those saying, um, do you might also see a very horrifying um, image of Kabul universities, uh, women, uh, all black, and I'm not sure uh, where those dress code is coming from because that's extremely foreign to us. And um, we are a, a country of uh, cultures and traditions and Islamic values, but um, that dress code is not even. Um, uh, it's, it's very foreign to us, and um, uh, although women used to cover themselves their forehead, we always do, and because it's part of our culture and our, already our, our Islamic values. But um, and those uh, women in the Kabul University sitting in their auditorium is extremely um, uh, oppressive, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they're um, uh, and now they have bound women and female uh, uh, faculties uh, to enter the university, saying that we will allow them only and only when we have a, a more installed security and everything because we're protecting women. What kind of protection are they talking about? This is exactly the same protection that they excuse that they put in 90s saying that we're a country, a country at war. Once the war is finished, we will allow women to go um, to, to work um, or, or to school. But um, this is not something that's new to us and we know that um, they will never honor these, these promises. Yeah. And the last point, sorry. No, Karen. Okay, the last point about um, the, the conditions that the international community put to them indirectly is that not Afghanistan shouldn't be a harboring uh, place for terrorism. Well, it's very clear that who are fighting in Afghanistan is uh, transnational uh, and international terrorists right now. The United Nations, um, a, lot, a few months ago, like earlier this year, uh, I don't have exactly which month, they uh, actually published a report saying that Al-Qaeda is very much present in Afghanistan and very much fighting alongside them. And then transnational terrorism, there are and there are 23 uh, groups, uh, transnational uh, terrorist groups right now active and fighting with the Taliban. And they are extremely um, resilient and extremely 
um, uh, discriminatory towards the West, and, and very, um, uh, very much uh, looking forward to to say that oh, Afghanistan is a starting point. We want to have this kind of thing. We want to basically take over the world and, and uh, um, make it Islamic uh, Islamic rule. So uh, and and then also yesterday, um, the uh, U.S. Uh, Defense uh, Secretary said that that um, it will take only two years for Al Qaeda to to be a threat to a serious threat to the United States again. So I'm not sure why the world is just by standing and watching that. Although countries are um, independent and recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government of Afghanistan, but there are certain human human rights and human rights criteria that they should fulfill. It's a kind of a moral call or moral obligation on each state or each country to accept. Mm. We're definitely seeing countries take this wait and watch approach to to accepting or to taking action on what's happening with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, Azadaraz, Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been so generous with your information and your story and everything that you've shared with us on the show. Um, thank you so much, Azadar. Thank you very much for having me, Alice. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem whatsoever. And that's the end of our breakfast show this morning. That was Wednesday breakfast, 29th of September. It's 8.32. Thank you to all our guests today and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.